This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today's discussion was recorded in December of 2023. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson, a longtime faculty member here at the Henry George School, who is joined by our guest, Dr. Walter Horn. Dr. Horn is a philosopher who uses his philosophical training to analyze public policy. Writing for journals such as the Journal of Philosophy and Philosophy of Phenomenological Research, Walter has published many articles on topics such as metaphysics, epistemology, or the psychology of religion. He is also the author of Democratic Theory Naturalized, which deeply examines populism and power relations within a democracy. As a professor, Dr. Horn has taught at Brown University and Framingham State University. When he's not busy writing about psychology or philosophy, our guest loves to write and analyze music and has several recorded albums. I want to start off by asking you, what defines democracy? If I asked you what makes a country a democracy, what would your answer be? Would it be free and fair elections, checks and balances, maybe freedom of speech, fair judicial processes with juries of your peers? The term democracy originates from Greece, demos meaning people, and kratos meaning rule. When the term was first coined, democracy was mostly practiced in Athens, which selected random citizens to fill judicial and administrative positions and had an assembly of all Athenian citizens to pass legislation. I would define it as the distribution of power between different actors within society, from the executive to legislative branch to corporations and consumers. Democracy is defined as ruled by the people, but since its conception, society has always struggled to achieve a true democracy. Even in Athens, where the idea was first born, democracy has never been fully achieved. For example, that legislative body that I just mentioned, it excluded women and slaves from participating, leaving out a lot of people in the decision-making process. Turning to more current times, we've seen democracies morph and change. The United States has gone through many changes, and had its democratic institutions tested. Donald Trump, the 45th president, could potentially be convicted guilty of numerous charges while running for president, creating a potential constitutional crisis if he wins. He was also responsible for the insurrection on January 6th, creating profound legal questions about the constitutional power of presidents, both current and former. But the executive branch isn't the only feature of government that is being questioned right now. Some have even begun to question certain aspects of our democratic institutions. One example is the Electoral College, a process where a body of electorates vote for both president and vice president in tandem with the popular vote. Another is the Supreme Court, where members hold lifelong tenures, have very few checks and balances, and are nominated by presidents and not citizens. According to Gallup, 28% of adults are satisfied with the way democracy is working in this country. As these aspects of our government structure become increasingly criticized, it is fair to wonder how we can improve these institutions and make government more democratic. This is where Dr. Horn comes in. 
To improve our system of government and create outcomes more beneficial to the public, Dr. Horn believes society needs a healthy dose of populism. Now, populism is a complex idea, usually harboring negative connotations from both the left and the right. But to Dr. Horn, populism is a movement towards radical democracy and the empowerment of people. Governments, democracies, and constitutions all change over time. But what these changes are, and who they impact, have lasting consequences on how we organize our society and decide who gets to make what decisions. Dr. Horn earned his bachelor's degree from Ithaca College and his PhD from Brown University, both in philosophy. Together, we discuss Dr. Horn's definition of populism, how democratic reform can empower citizens, and why education is so important to achieving democratic outcomes. We hope you enjoy this talk. And please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Dr. Horn, welcome to Smart Talk. Thanks, Ed. Well, uh, let's get right into the central issues uh, that are associated with your thinking about democracy. In the first pages of your book, Democratic theory naturalized, you write that your, quote, goal is to uncover foundations that can be used to support a number of populist arrangements, reasons why such perhaps ideal polities and only such polities should be considered worthy democracies. So a good place to start our conversation is to ask you to explain why democracy requires the existence of populist arrangements. The idea of populism, as I understand it, is I just mean by it something like radical democracy. And what radical democracy is, it sounds scary, and populism sounds scarier. I know people associate it with Bolsonaro or Trump or maybe even uh, Mussolini and Hitler. But all I mean by it is that the majority uh, will rule that the minority will have appropriate voice in uh, legislatures and in government, and that the elections are absolutely fair. And uh, we don't have any of those things currently in the US. In fact, I would say that we have never had any of those things. So while things are getting worse, they've never really been very good. We've never had a system where the majority rules, where the minority gets its say, and where all the plebiscites are fairly conducted. So that's what I mean by uh, distilled populism, those things. Okay. Not, it, shouldn't be, uh, it shouldn't be connected with any thoughts about uh, nativism or right-wing or left-wing views. It's supposed to just require self-government. And it's important that those who read your book come to that conclusion. After it, my own reading of your book, it took me quite a while to really understand what you were getting at. And in the world, in our everyday world, except for someone who has been living in the wilderness for the last 30 years, I think any thoughtful person has to be deeply concerned about the deep ideological divide that threatens our basic liberties and the continued existence of our republic which is what you've just alluded to. What do you see as the most serious threats we face and what ought to be done to eliminate them? I absolutely agree with you that uh, 
the ideological differences, the, the uh, polar animosity, uh, now it's very dangerous, getting worse. Um, it's, uh, that's probably began uh, with the APSA study on parties from uh, 1960 when they, uh, they wanted the parties, APSA, the American uh, Political Science Association, decided that the party system was no good in the U.S. because there were liberal Republicans and there were conservative Democrats. And so you couldn't tell, you couldn't tell what your party was actually for. It was the kind of foggy slop and they didn't like that. They thought the party system should be really responsible. So they pushed for what they call the responsible party system or, you know, and it worked, it took a long time, but now there are no more liberal Republicans. There are no more conservative Democrats. And we have a, a, a really polarized society. So I agree with that portion of the concern, but maybe I li do live in the wilderness uh, in my Boston suburbs uh, with respect to the business about loss of individual liberties, because I think there's actually too, been too much focus on that in the U.S. That is, I'm, that's not something I'm concerned with. I think that's something that, you know, gun rights activists are concerned with, uh, vaccine uh, opponents are concerned with, uh, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I think in order to have democracy, there has to be some ability for governments to actually get things that the people want. And to the extent that you go too far with uh, individual rights, um, you, you, you can't have a democratic system. So uh, what I, what I, but on the other hand, you do have to have some individual rights. Otherwise you can't have a democracy. You have to have equal protection. You have to have um, equal treatment under the law. You have to have freedom of speech. You have to have freedoms of association um, and assembly. So you have to have political rights. But once you get beyond those, you start getting into areas where all you're really doing is restricting democracy. And so I'm not so concerned about the loss of uh, individual um, liberties as, as suggested in your question. Seems like the debate that Madison and Hamilton engaged in has been resurrected in a, in a very strident way. Um, I'm also thinking as you're speaking about what the philosopher Mortimer Adler uh, wrote about the distinction between freedom and liberty. He wrote that, that uh, liberty is freedom constrained by justice. The challenge, of course, is we cannot find a consensus agreement on what constitutes justice. Right. Uh, I, 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 I'm skeptical that any, any consensus can ever be reached on justice or really any other moral uh, proposition. So... Uh, I what I try to do in my book is leave aside uh, moral claims and justice claims and just look at prudential values, leave aside moral values. What's a prudential value? That's to decide what is good for a person, not what's good, not what's morally good or what's ethically good, but what's good for a person or good for a group. And so what things are good for a group or for a person? And if, if you think about prudential values, think about any kind of values, aesthetic values, moral values, 
you have to distinguish between intrinsic values and extrinsic or instrumental values. And, and um, since I'm focusing on prudential values, the prudential value, the intrinsic prudential value, in my view, is just uh, getting what one chooses. That now that can be that can cause extrinsic harms, as we know. If a if a drug addict gets what he or she wants, it might be bad for him or her. Um, so there can have extrinsic harms, but 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 what what makes those harmful? What makes the addict's choice harmful is that eventually it, that's not what he wants. He doesn't want to be addicted. He doesn't want to be, you know, having withdrawal. He doesn't want those things. So if, when we look at extrinsic values or instrumental values, though they still relate to the final intrinsic values. And in, and in, and in prudential terms, what that is, is getting what one wants. And so uh, that's the, to, to me, that's the key of what democracy is. So what, what you have to do in democratic theory is figure out how to figure out first what it is that's a good. Uh, and here, and, and I say it's getting what one wants, which is, seems obvious. Uh, again, it may, getting what one wants may not be good in the long run uh, because it may have extrinsic harms, but intrinsically, that's what democracy is about, getting what one wants. And so you have to figure out what that is. Then you have to figure out how to determine what a community wants. And so you have to have fair, you have, have to figure out how to set up a system of fair voting rights, how you have to worry about, um, you have to worry about campaign finance, for example, you have to worry about whether it should be approval voting or ranked choice voting. You have to think about all that kind of stuff. And then you have to think about what the, what the government structure is like. And that's why, as you mentioned, I don't like bicameralism or, or indeed things with 12, uh, you know, some, some have more than two, some countries have more than two. Um, the, all those are doing, what those things are set to do is, as you say, is they're Madisonian ideas. They're to prevent the demos from getting what it wants. They're to, they're to say, well, you know, we, let's think about it. You know, let's have, uh, let's have uh, uh, the Senate uh, maybe require 60 votes to do something. And you got to get it by the House too. And you got to get it, the president to support it too. They're all things to prevent uh, people from getting what they want. So they're basically anti, you know, they call them checks and balances. They're basically anti-democratic proposals shoved in there to prevent people from getting what they want. And that's, and, and I, I don't blame Madison for that stuff so much because he was afraid. Um, uh, you do need to have some protections. As I say, you need to require equal treatment. You need to require due process of law. You need to require those things. Otherwise, people get just pulled out of their house and just, you know, dispatched in the middle of the night. So I, I think it's understandable, but I don't think enough thought went into exactly which are the things you need to have uh, in order to have democracy. And again, I think it's also the case that when people think about democracy, they they think, well, a democratic, a really nice democratic system will be kind or a really democratic, nice democratic system will be virtuous. And I don't think democracy can provide that. Other things can, you know, uh, education and virtue maybe, but that's not democracy. Democracy is a, systems, is a system that will get people what they want. And if a group of people are cruel, 
you can expect that, the, that a democracy will produce a cruel country. Um, you, can't, you can't expect it to, oh, well, let's, let's, let's to also make people good. It's not, that's not its job. Then what is, uh, what is the recourse for those who are adversely impacted by what the majority decides they want? Well, uh, yeah, it, it's difficult. I mean, again, we have to re we have to we have to uh, ensure some protections. You have to have you have to have uh, right of free speech. They have to be able to vote for their people, the, you know, the people that they want. They have to have a voice, an appropriate voice in government, which would which would be provided, excuse me, by proportional representation. And um, uh, so there are certain certain things majorities can't do to their minorities in a democratic country, but they can be obnoxious. Um, and uh, a, a cruel people will produce a cruel uh, government. And uh, what's going to fix that? Well, I don't know. Uh, nicer people, better education, uh, you know, but that's not democratic theory. That's... Uh, you know, we leave that to, uh, you know, uh, parents and schools and so, but that's not, that's not democracy. Uh, and I think, uh, I, I do think that a, a country might decide, as uh, the Trumpians say, to put up a wall. I don't, I think uh, a, a country that's really xenophobic uh, could well decide to do that. Um, and uh, you might not want to live in that country. Uh, maybe you, you don't think that's a nice thing to do to put up wells. But if, if that's what the people want, they should be allowed to do that. On the other hand, if people get in, if these immigrants or intended immigrants get in and they live there for a while, say a year, they should be able to vote. And if they don't like the idea uh, of a wall, they should be able to vote to get rid of the wall. Uh, and that's what's required by democracy, that the people who are living in that jurisdiction have a say and the appropriate say. What about at the individual level? I mean, uh, Madison, for one, was a great defender of meritocracy, but he, does, he believes strongly in meritocracy based on uh, individual demonstration of competency. And so we have have that as a beginning you know for society to come together uh, based on do we feel that others are competent to participate and what criteria ought to be put forward as a demonstration of competency do you have Man, any thoughts on on that i issue? do i do i i am very opposed to uh views of that kind i mean i I don't know, I wasn't aware that that was Madison's view, but I know that was John Stuart Mill's view. And he thought that uh, people with certain levels of education should have additional votes. Um, uh, that view, you know, it's called epistocracy, that the, it's the, it should be ruled by the wise. Um, and then maybe it goes back to Plato. Um, and I am very much opposed to that. I think it's, it confuses what democracy is about. I, I, in philosophy, they talk about, uh, in political philosophy, some philosophers view elections as um, truth tracking. So that if lots of people vote for something, uh, that it's likely to be true or good. 
Uh, if people want a bridge, if lots, most people want a bridge, uh, then having a bridge is the right thing to do. Um, now, I, I agree that if most people want a bridge, having the bridge is the right thing to do, but not because it's there's any wisdom in that, but only because that reflects what the people want. And I don't think you can get beyond uh, that point because there could be so many reasons why people want a bridge or don't want a bridge. They may want not want the bridge because they think bridges are ugly. They may not want the bridge because bridges are expensive and they don't want to pay for it. They may not want the bridge because they think people will get more exercise walking around the, like, there's no, and there's no, there's no truth to be found in whether the bridge is the right thing or the wrong thing. All there is, is that the only truth that we can get to is what people want in this case. So I, I, I'm very much opposed to episocracy. The book, a lot of the book is about that. Um, it's about- Let me- let me interrupt you for just a second. I don't want our, our viewers to, to get the wrong idea about Madison, um, because when he talked about meritocracy, he wasn't referring to educational level. And in fact, he thought that the people who worked the land, the farmers, were the key to the democracy of the new republic. And very much was concerned about the Hamiltonian view of certain people, the you know, certain people in society having more, uh, you know, power and prestige and influence based on their position, inherited wealth or whatever it might be. So I just want to make sure that that uh, I don't misrepresent Madison. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I agree with either Hamilton or Madison on this point. I mean, I, I wouldn't want... Uh, power to be allocated based uh, either on uh, the amount of education people have or what sort of work they do or um, whether or not we think we think we happen to think they're good people or they're, you know, rat bastards or, you know, I don't think uh, democracy, I think we have to just go based on the Jeffersonian view that all people are equal. And they have to be treated equally, or there isn't going to be democracy. There'll be some form of despotism. So I, I guess uh, I, I, I wouldn't stand with either Hamilton or Madison on that. So uh, although some people might not be able to perform their civic responsibilities because of a incompetency, whether or not that was a incompetency from birth or a voluntary incompetency, someone who becomes an alcoholic or a drug addict, et cetera, uh, you would not um, uh, preclude them from participating? I would not preclude them. Uh, um, yeah, I think um, it's important that, uh, you know, felons get the vote. I, 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 I think everyone should be allowed to vote. Um, uh, so long, the, the only competency that I think they need is they have to understand what a vote is. That is, they got to understand what it is they're doing. They're going to the voting because they want this or they don't want. Would you rather have the bridge or not have it? Would you rather have Jones be your president or Smith be your president? If they can understand that, they should be entitled to vote and there should be no other competency testing. Um, I put the vote, the age at 16 because I think that that's at the point where there's a big jump 
roughly, you know, somewhere in the mid-teens, there's a big jump in that level of competency. But, uh, you know, the idea that, well, you should be paying taxes in order to vote, or you couldn't be a bad person, uh, and, you know, uh, and get to vote, or you should have a certain amount of, you know, as the states had, lots of the states had, you have to have a property where you got to be, a, or you have to be a farmer in order to vote. Uh, I, I don't think any of those are consistent with uh, democracy. Is publicly funded education required to achieve the result that you're suggesting we need? No. No. No, for the reasons I said, I don't think any level of education is required. Now, if you when you say the results that we need, if you are talking about the results that I would like, yes, I'm in favor of public education. Uh, um, I, I'm in favor of, you know, I, I'm in favor of land value taxes, for example, but I, but, but, you know, and so I would push for those that, but, but I think if, if, if I were to require them, whether or not people wanted them, then that would be a kind of despotism. So yeah, I'm in favor of them. I have my views, just like everybody else about politics, but they don't trump, uh, I'm sorry, no pun intended there. They don't trump democratic theory. Democracy is about self-government. It's about people being able to get what they want. The fact that I want this, I want public education, or I want the land value tax, or I want, uh, you know, I want uh, the universal basic income or whatever I want, uh, when I could be wrong about any of this stuff. But the fact that I want those, it's, it's interesting and I'll push for them and I'll, uh, you know, I'll give my little bit of money to those causes, but, but I, I can't require that. I can't insist that we have that, even if most people don't want it. I have to move then, maybe someplace else that will take me. So if, if a majority of the individuals eligible to, to vote, vote for uh, whatever measure it might be, in particular, I'm thinking about in the introduction your, your desire to have the Electoral College eliminated. Um, right now, that would require a constitutional amendment. Sure you, am I correct that you would mandate that if 51% of, of the population of the United States voted to eliminate the Electoral College, the Electoral College would be gone? I, I would if I could, yes. <laughs> okay. yes. I think the people should get what they want. Um, and in fact, I, it's interesting. The, the, as you know, the U.S. Constitution is really, really hard to amend. It's, it's yes. In some manners, it's absolutely impossible to amend. The business about the Senate only having two per state—you probably need every state to agree to change that. So it, it's basically unamendable. But some things you can amend, and I think in some and and of course, I would like it to be much easier to amend the U.S. Constitution. It's it, it's extremely difficult. But on the other hand, I would have things in there that were absolutely unamendable. So uh, as you say, if 51% if of the people want something, um, I don't think you should be able to amend the Constitution so it's not a democratic society. Those things, you have to start somewhere. Uh, and in my view, democracy is the bedrock. Uh, that otherwise, you know, we don't have self-government. So so I would make up, there were, there are a few items, the ones that I mentioned earlier, you know, about fairness, getting, you know, figuring out, you know, getting minority voice, getting majority rule, um, 
uh, and those some of those things are inconsistent with electoral colleges and you know this federalism of the kind that we have in the U.S. I I wouldn't make those amendable at all. So uh, you I I. I I want democracy, but not in the matter of eliminating democracy. Uh, the, that then, you know, there's no point. So uh, there are some items that I would make not, you know, I take it the we could amend the Constitution so that women can't vote anymore or that blacks can't vote anymore, that the Constitution is so amendable. I mean, to me, that's just dis disgusting. So, uh, yeah, the, uh, I want... I want uh, a much more easily amendable constitution, but I would like to have a certain batch of things in there that are just beyond reach. Democracy as practiced could yield unjust outcomes. Absolutely. And the people would have to be wise enough to realize that those outcomes are unjust and reverse the course of history. Yeah, you can hope. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, justice is such a difficult issue. Moral, moral claims are so difficult. And my own view, if I can get into it for a minute, I only discuss it a little Please bit. Please do. My, my, my own view is that there are, there are, some people don't think there's any morality. There's no moral truths. You know, they're so-called error theorists. They think the whole thing is nonsense and there's no moral, there's no morality. I don't agree with that. I think there are, there are moral truths. And uh, some people think there's no evidence at all for any moral truths that there's, you know, and I don't agree with them either. I think that there is evidence uh, and the evidence comes from feelings of empathy or revulsion, you know, that those are evidence that some state of affairs is morally good or morally bad. However, what I don't think you can get is knowledge in the area, uh, in the area of morality. That's because there isn't a background theory. And, and, and let me explain what I mean by that. In the case of, um, why do I think that there's a couch in the room that I'm sitting? Well, I have the same thing. I have evidence. Uh, I think there's truths. Uh, so why, why do I think that there are couches, but I don't think that I can, and I think I can know that there's a couch there, but I don't think I can know that killing, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that eating, uh, cows is bad or something like that. The difference is that we have a scientific theory that kind of uh, explains, you know, that items hit me, you know, my eyeballs and, you know, there's a science, there's a, there's a, uh, a scientific theory, which has been confirmed, which, which um, grounds uh, the evidence and the truths. Whereas in morality, there really isn't that. Some people have some theories, the hedonism or utilitarianism, but there's such grave objections to those views so that you're just left with the intuitions. You're just left with, well, this seems like it's really bad. And there's no theory, there's no theory to ground the whole matter. So in the case of morality, I'm basically skeptical, not as to the existence of moral truths, but as to the ability of anybody to know which ones they are, just because they're, you know, perhaps somebody will come up with a moral theory uh, that grounds the whole system of morality. Maybe somebody has, but I haven't seen it. I don't think so. But, um, but uh, to my way of thinking, we, we can have much better luck with prudential uh, values. That is what's good for someone 
than we can with moral values. What's morally good or what's just? I don't think you're going to get uh, uh, you're going to get knowledge on that front. So uh, again, we have your views and my views, and we may be right and we may agree. I know we agree on a lot of things. Uh, I've, I've known you for many years, and I know we agree on certain things, but that I think is insufficient um, for uh, you know. So yeah. Democracy comes first, in my view. I'm reminded of what Descartes left to us, and he said, I think, therefore I am. And we, unique among the animal world, have the ability to contemplate our actions before we act. We can think in advance of what the outcome of those actions is going to be. Is that not inherently um, knowledge and inherently a... Um, an instinct toward a moral sense of right and wrong. Well, I think Descartes was probably right about, I think, therefore, you know, this cogito. Uh, um, uh, I don't, um, in order to get to moral truths, uh, he appealed to God. Uh, and so he has an ontological proof of the existence of God. Um, I wouldn't uh, go along with him there, um, but I, uh, I'm okay with the cogito. Well, let's go off in a little bit of a different direction now. I take it that you agree with the analysis of the political scientists who warn that the money interest, the corporate, as well as others, dictate the direction of public policy. So the question is, have we passed the point of no return, or is there still an opportunity to reverse the course of our history in favor of actual equality of influence over our sociopolitical arrangements and institutions? Um, that's a good question. I think uh, it's not impossible, but I don't think in my lifetime uh, we'll see a reversal because the, the, the court is so filled with, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is so filled with justices that agree with uh, Citizens United, for example, and Buckley v. Vallejo. I don't see that happening uh, uh I don't see a, you know, a, a, a sensible reckoning um, in my lifetime, not the way the power is divvied, you know, where the Supreme Court has so much power. Uh, nobody can do anything. Congress can't do anything about this. Uh, you'd need a constitutional amendment or lots of new justices to overturn those. Uh, in my book, I just point to one thing which I think would have a, a beneficial effect and that is one small portion of the fairness doctrine, the old fairness doctrine, which was originally put in place in 1949 and then slowly, you know, went into dissuaditude over the next, you know, 50 years. But there was one provision in there. It was called, it was called after Nicholas Zappel, who was uh, uh, the lawyer who wrote it um, in the, for the FCC, was called the Zappel Doctrine. And what that required was that uh, during elections, which in the U.S. is always, I guess, um, uh, if a broadcast outlet uh, had, a not, had a, someone other than the candidate pushing that candidacy, that the, the opponent, all opponents would get equal time at the same cost. Um, and I think, uh, you know, 
that wasn't liked by broadcasters. They thought it was onerous. It was costly. Um, but I think the result, and they thought it would be damaging to freedom of speech and so on. I think it would pass constitutional muster. And my sense about the campaign uh, ads is that they're not providing any real information. Anyways, it's mostly propaganda and you know disinformation. So uh, if there were to be less, and because the broadcasters would not then run ads because they didn't want to run ads for the their opponents, the, the American people probably benefit from that. But if they did continue to run ads, you'd you'd hear from uh, all the parties. Um, it would it wouldn't apply to ballot questions, for example, or general uh, political discussions, but it would, and it wouldn't apply if the candidate, him or herself, were to uh, go and talk about their candidacy, but it would apply from any group uh, or person pushing the candidacy of one candidate, everybody else would be entitled to equal time. And I think that would pass constitutional muster. Um, and I think it would be beneficial, but it certainly wouldn't undo the harm that the courts have done. Uh, it's, and, and uh, yeah, you ask a very good question. I doubt there is much uh, that can be done given the present constitution of the U.S. Supreme Court. What about the role of the media these days in at least fairness in dealing with the issues that we face as a civilization. Do you get a sense that, that any part of the media is doing an acceptable job in presenting factual analysis that's balanced? Uh, I guess there are some, uh, some outlets, you know, but I, I, they may just be the ones that I tend to agree with more. Um, I think some outlets are better than others, uh, and they they tend to provide more balanced views. Um, it, it's interesting that when a when uh, say a broadcaster, a newscaster, or something, an anchor does that, they tend to get thrown out by their you know by either Fox or CNN or whoever it is. They, so, so we're left with with uh, NPR. <laughs> yeah, right. We have NPR, and I guess that's something. Um, uh, how uh, how unbiased they are uh, will how unbiased they're considered will probably depend on who you ask. Um, uh, I am, you know, I'm not an expert on that on this matter, but um, uh, I'm glad there's NPR, and I'm glad there's a wide variety of outlets that I can turn to, but. Um, it's hard to tell who is, uh, you know, who's being unbiased. Well, there are half, we have to face the fact that our institutions are being severely challenged by the political, the ideological divide. So when, when you think about the future of democracy in our country, other than the issues that we've covered already, are there any additional reforms that you think will lead us back in the right direction of a democracy based on moral um, majority rule? Uh, well, um, I'm just reading a book now by Rick Hassan, his new book. I, um, it's, it's about uh, 
having a constitutional amendment uh, requiring the right to vote, which uh, uh, a lot of countries have, and we don't have anything like that in the U.S. In fact, uh, based on some readings of the Constitution, uh, it would be okay if nobody voted and the state legislatures just decided who the next president is. And the next uh, January 20th situation could be, you know, successful. Um, so I, th I, I, Rick is an incredibly, incredibly sedulous and industrious. I, I don't know how anyone uh, puts out as much stuff as he does. And I think he may be onto something um, that that probably would be helpful, a constitutional right to vote, which would guarantee everybody of any uh, ethnicity and race and so on. I don't know if he has an age. Uh, I haven't finished this book yet, but uh, I think uh, a real, I think the book's called The Real Right to Vote. And I think that probably would be helpful, uh, but it's a, it requires a constitutional amendment. You have to convince uh, everyone that it's good for them. Um, and it may be that such a right could be connected with things that Republicans have wanted, which is, you know, more careful look at whether this is actually the person uh, who's supposed to be voting. And that would, that would be okay. I think that would be okay with, with uh, Hassan. Um, it would be okay with me. Uh, but, uh, but you can't, but on the other hand, attempts to make it more difficult to vote uh, for poor people or people of certain races or whatever would obviously uh, be undone by such a amendment. What about moving toward what the Australians have done and passed legislation that requires people to vote? It's an interesting, <laughs> that's an interesting thought. I, I've thought about that some compulsory voting. Um, I, my first thought was that indifference is indifference. So non-voting provides some information. And so it, it's not such a, um, it's not wholly good to require people to vote uh, because you lose um, you lose the that information of people who don't want to vote. But but if you always allow for abstentions, um, then uh, you could require people to vote and um, and uh, and still find out that people don't care. Uh, They'd be so, willing to pay for the pen the pay penalty rather than vote. Yeah, and they may be willing to pay a small penalty. I, I don't think it's a terrible idea. Uh, in the past, uh, I think in my book, I say, well, I like the idea of getting that information, but I hadn't thought that you could require abstentions in every, and so it, it might not be, it, it might not be a bad idea. And I think it's consistent with my views about democracy. I, I'd, li I'd like to think about it more. I think the idea of another thing that I thought about recently was requiring people to join a party is not such a bad idea either, because it would be since since a lot of people there are some tremendous number of independents in the U.S. and they would not want to join either the Democratic or the Republican Party. They don't like either of these parties. And so if there were if, if in order to vote, you had to be a member of a party, you, I think you might see more parties spring up. Because I, you know, I know there's a vast number of people in the U.S. that don't want to be in either of the parties, and that's one of the reasons we have so many independents. So I think those ideas might help, and I want to think more about the compulsory voting question because I think it's an interesting question.
What about at the other end of the results of elections? What if we thought about how we choose our legislators and look back to the Greek experience of selecting our legislators by lottery of some sort? This has occurred to me as an idea that might pull us in the direction of the democracy that you are talking about. You know, we would have to would have to have some requirement. My my thought was, anyone who's willing to serve would take and pass what amounts to a civil service examination to demonstrate competency, knowledge of government, and then their name would go into the lottery. If their name's chosen, they would they would serve a term in office, and after the end of that term, they would return to their private lives. Something like that. Yeah, it's interesting to me how many people are in favor of the lottery system. To me, uh, right now, I think, you know, many people don't get who they would like. Uh, and what the lottery system says, nobody gets who they would like. And and so, that, you see, I, I, I would prefer a government where people got to choose their representatives rather than nobody gets to choose their representative. I don't, I wouldn't, it's interesting because you're certainly not alone in liking that method, but, to me, it's anti-democratic. It's not people getting what they want. It's people getting some random uh, person to represent them. I think voters should get people who represent their views. And th so what the lottery does is says, well, you know, they might, you know, because it's a random, we're going to do it for random, it might represent a bunch of people's views. Might not, though. It might be a cuckoo. Uh, uh, and it might, you know, and it's, it's, to me, I mean, I guess it just depends on what you mean by democracy. To me, that's not a democratic um, suggestion. It doesn't, it, it's not uh, in the direction of people getting what they want, of the general will being, it, it's because it, it's just depending on some probability theory. Well, you know, we might... You might, you know, because it's random, we're going to pick a person at random. It could, it might be your mother-in-law, you know, it could be great for you. Um, if, if you don't mind me uh, going a little bit further with that, what if a recall provision was included where 51% of the voters in that, you know, geography voted to recall you, even though you were selected by lottery, then someone else would, would come in. What, what occurs to me as the great advantage or plural advantages of a lottery is, number one, you eliminate the need for fundraising, public or private. You, need, you eliminate all the campaign activity and the negativity in our campaigns that has been prevalent. Well, I think it's been prevalent almost uh, certainly after George Washington was, was chosen as president. Uh, and... Uh, thirdly, there, there's there's this element that people will will serve uh, will be public servants for a limited period of time. That this is no longer a profession; it's something you do for a limited period of time, and then you go back to your private life. And so, the idea of inherited power passing from father to son to grandson. You know, the, the Kennedy story, for example, or the Bush story, um, those kinds of, of outcomes that, that exist in our current system would be severely curtailed.
yeah, that that may be the case. I, I will tell you what I like about your suggestion, and that's the recall element. I think recall is very democratic. Generally, I think we should have recall. I think every elected official, uh, and perhaps not judges if they're elected uh, in some jurisdictions, um, uh, ought to be subject to recall. Um, uh, and uh, so I'm very much in favor of recall. But you see, recall is, I, I like recall because it's democratic, right? And, um, uh, and I like, um, and, and in fact, I don't like even, I know people like uh, term limits for the reasons that you mentioned. They don't want the people to stay in. It's hard to get rid of incumbents. But again, that's an undemocratic uh, provision. I, I think term limits, people should be able to get the, some guy that's been there for 150 years if they want to. The problems, we'll see what you're doing is you're addressing problems, you know, like the, the, the negativity of campaigns and the, you're addressing them by some, by some, you know, mechanism, uh, because you can't get because you, you you find yourself unable to, because we find ourselves unable to fix them uh, in a democratic system. So you say, well, we can't fix this. We we have these horrible elections. There's all this money being spent. There's you know negativity in campaigns, and we can't fix this. Uh, or there's people being reelected and reelected and reelected, and they're terrible when they're old and they're, you know, but they just keep getting reelected and we can't fix this. So I know what we'll do. Let's give up on democracy. Let's not have people choose. Let's, let's, we'll, we'll do it by, we'll have a machine pick a person. And so we won't have democracy, but we will get rid of all this stuff that we don't like about democracy. I understand that. I, I, I agree with you. Those are bad things, but I don't want to give up on democracy. I think it's better to keep trying to let to, to have self-government. I don't think a lottery is a is self-government. It's sort of government by machinery. Um, again, I certainly understand what the goals are, and 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 that and I don't want to disagree with you. It, it might it might help us get closer to those goals, but I don't think it's an example of democracy. Right. I gather you would agree that probably with Winston Churchill. When he said democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. The others. I guess that's <laughs> it. Yeah, I guess I, I guess I agree with that. And I think that Britain has a better form than we do. I think parliamentary forms are better. Um, you know, not that the British form is perfect, but uh, it's much more democratic than ours. And their constitution, such as it is, uh, which is not written, uh, is easier to amend. And uh I think it's generally a better system. I, th I think parliamentary systems are superior to presidential systems. Um, uh, not in every way. There are some things I like about presidential systems as well. But um, uh, I think Churchill, one, one worse democracy than his own was ours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, well, um I had a question as you were just finishing up and now it has escaped me. Um, but let me go back to that in a minute. Uh, if it comes back to me, this is the terrible problem with aging. You know, if you don't, <laughs> yeah. you don't, you don't capture a thought immediately. Sometimes Where? it takes a, a while for it to come back. Why am I downstairs again? And who's <laughs> it I'm talking to? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, 
in the next to the last chapter of your book, Democratic Theory Naturalized, you join in the debate over claims to rights as inherent to our existence as individuals or political as essential to our membership in a society. So this, when I read that, the question came to me, am I correct that you believe societal protections of political rights is of first importance? Yes, polit of political rights, but political rights only. Yes, I don't, I, I don't think you can have democracy without that. So that, but remember, that's not all the right. That's not, there's no property right there. There's no, uh, there's a lot of, there's no gun rights. There's no rights to keep uh, people out of your house. What is it? The, 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 the amendment where you can't, how you can't be required to house military officials. Right. You know, those are not political rights. Um, so, uh, but those political rights of speech, uh, equal protection, uh, equal treatment under law, um, uh, association, uh, assembly, uh, those I think are absolute. If you don't have those, you can't have democracy. Those are the first importance. In, in my teaching here at the Henry George School uh, and the course that I've taught, getting to the discussion of what constitutes a just society and what constitutes just law, I put this scenario to my students and it was interesting to get their reaction. I said, um, what if everyone in this room constitutes all of the members of our society? And one of the issues that re really bothers us in our society is double parking. And so we have a vote and we have a 100% vote in favor of the death penalty for double parking. In democracy, could that be carried out? And what would prevent it from being carried out in a democracy? Uh, I think nothing. Nothing. I think if you had, a, nothing would prevent it. I think, uh, again, a stupid society is, uh, is going to produce a stupid government. A uh, cruel society is going to produce a cruel government. It's not fair to democracy to ask it to fix those problems. If you want, if if you want uh, democracy to fix those problems, you're going to end up with something that isn't democracy. So I, I think that's a great thought experiment that you give them. And I don't know what they say, but um, uh, if you can prevent uh, people from uh, uh, enacting a stupid law like that, uh, whether it's a death penalty or what if it's 50 days in jail or you know whatever it is, um, if you can prevent people from doing that, what you're saying is, well, I know better than, uh, than this populace. I, you know, I really should be king uh, because I, I know uh, they're too stupid. They can't be allowed to, to make laws. They, they just can't be allowed. We have to, we have to find someone, whether it's, we just, you know, designate ourselves or do it by lot, maybe, uh, find someone who is better and who knows better. And, and that, uh, I don't, you know, that's a sort of elitism that I, I, I don't like. On the other hand, I do think that you're, you might want to ask your students also, what about, uh, what about uh, a, a law that lets us prevent uh, blondes from voting? 
mm. uh, matter uh, or that um, that, you know, something where, you know, something that involves equal treatment or something where if you have it, you really can't produce a democratic result and see what they say about that. Because, see, I treat those differently. I think there are rights and there are rights. Uh, there's no right to to not to there's no right to avoid a death penalty for double parking i don't think there is such a right but i do think there is such a right uh uh to uh that everybody be treated equally so if you were only giving this death penalty to uh certain minorities uh then i, I think you would should be able to prevent it well i think lock you know, made in his writings the distinction between liberty and license, behaviors that that go beyond our common sense of, of right and wrong in terms of behavior. And he said those are those are behaviors that go into the realm of license, where we exercise um, license to hurt someone else, take someone else's property, so in some way violate the the liberty of others and i've always thought that that suggests that we are born with some imperfect moral sense of right or wrong and wrong that perhaps this is biologically inherited i don't know that for sure but but i i you know i wonder if if cooperate our our instinct to cooperate comes from this inherited moral sense of right and wrong and then it's up to our societal relations our family relations our community relations our larger societal relations to nurture those constructive behaviors uh you may be right and i i i i hope they get nurtured um i i i mean I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't like to live in a really stupid or cruel uh, country. Um, I and I so uh, I hope you're right. Um, I don't and I don't know that there's been, um, you know, uh, a, a appropriate evolution on that front. But maybe there has. Maybe things are better as a result of uh, of this biological trait. Um, uh, as I say, I wouldn't want to live uh, in a cruel democracy. And to some extent, I think I do now. Um, but I don't think, again, I don't think it's democracy's obligation to produce virtue. Um, it's something else. And whether it's a biological trait or maybe it's the, you know, it's the teacher's problems or the parents' problems, that, that's where virtue has to come from. You can't expect your setting up of democracy to produce a nice place, because if you do, you're going to end up giving up on democracy. When we are, um, when we feel as though our society has failed us in that regard, and we reach the decision to leave, one of the big challenges we have is where to go, mm. where to go to. Uh, the frontier is no longer available to us uh, for as a safety valve. Um, but does that, it's an impediment, but do we inherently have a right to secede from society? 
And how do we then exercise that right in the absence of, of frontier places to go to? Yeah, I think with, with people our age, also they they don't want us in any place with a <laughs> any place with the health uh, with national health insurance does not want us because we're just a drain. So you know we can go to uh, Central America maybe, uh, but we can't go to Finland. They're not going to take you uh, or me, certainly. I mean, that's well, a good we question. have we we may have something to offer those societies, even though we're a bit uh, aged. I think so, but I don't know if they, <laughs> I think we do. Um, uh, that's a really good question. Um, I, you know, I talk a little bit in the book about um, refusing to let people in um, and, uh, you know, building of walls and so on. Um, uh, and I didn't think much about um, letting people out if they want to leave. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure. I'd have to think about that. I, I don't know whether it's consistent with democratic principles to prohibit people from leaving altogether, um, which seems, you know, again, who wants to live in that country where you can't, they won't even let you leave. Um, but I don't, again, it's, it's important to distinguish what's, uh, what makes a bad democracy and what makes a bad country. Um, so we, I have to think about that more as to where one could go. Um, I mean, if you're Bezos, I guess the moon, uh, or Musk, um, for the rest of us, uh, I don't know. I think, uh, I'm, I'm I'll be six feet under before you know it. So that's where I'll be going. <laughs> well, these are really deep, deeply penetrating issues for us to think about. And you've done a lot of thinking, and I think our our viewers will benefit by the experience of listening to this conversation. I'd like to leave the last segment of this to you to raise any issues that we haven't covered, important you know, questions that you think we need to consider as we try to move toward a democracy that meets your criteria of a distilled populism? Well, I think I would encourage people to not just vote, but get involved in uh, electoral activities. I, 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 I would encourage people to look at various proposals that are out there for approval voting or ranked choice voting or uh, various forms of proportional representation for elimination of the Electoral College, for, for any items that will make the country more uh, like a place where the majority is getting what it wants, but, the minor but minorities, any significant minority, uh, is getting an appropriate voice. And I'm not particularly sanguine uh, about uh, about good things happening because of the divisiveness, uh, as you mentioned in your opening remarks of the, the current polar polarism in the country. But um, I do, um, I do think that, you know, we can try. Well, those of us who are thoughtful about our condition and want to make the world better for the next generations. We have a lot of challenges and certainly the form of our governance is an important part of those challenges. 
And so I thank you for taking the time out to talk to us and for sharing uh, your insights. And I hope that our viewers will find a copy of your book and read it and uh, maybe get in contact with you to uh, express their own views of, you know, uh, how they think things might be improved. I'd be happy to hear from them. Thanks so, a lot. So thank you very much, Walter. It was great get, catching up with you. And uh, uh, perhaps as we um, go through the next electoral cycle, uh, we'll, there'll be a, an opportunity for us to talk again and see whether results suggest to you whether we are move closer or further away from a real democracy. Thanks, Ed. Appreciate it. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.